0: This is John Anderson, direct with Neil Ferguson. Neil, thank you so much again for giving us of your time and your views as an economic historian are critically important in my view at the moment. It seems to me that uh, channeling Dickens, in some ways, uh, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. The worst is obviously utterly dreadful. But the bravery of the Ukrainians from its leader down is really inspirational and will have, I think, global and long-term effects. You uh, went there often. I think you are quite affectionately disposed towards the Ukrainian people and the nation. What did we miss? I mean, it is a place that's very wealthy, yet cronyism seems to have been pretty rife. Uh, Living standards are low, which suggests that the the system wasn't working as well as it might have. But, But we now see a remarkable people responding in a way that inspires us. What did we miss? Well, it's true,
1: uh, John, I, I've been going to Ukraine pretty much every year for the last 10 years. I uh, used to go to Yalta in Crimea until it became uh, annexed by Russia in 2014, and then would go to Kiev and was there in September. And I just want to say that uh, the role that President Volodymyr Zelensky has played in the last few weeks uh, has earned him a place in the history books. I've met him. His story is a remarkable one. It's almost as if back in the 1930s, Charlie Chaplin had become president of a country because he was Ukraine's Charlie Chaplin, a comedian and entertainer. He played the part of president in a sitcom about an ordinary guy who becomes president. And then in a very postmodern twist, he really did become president. Even uh, although I've always liked him, he's hard not to like, I wouldn't have predicted a year ago that he would become a Churchill of our times, uh, personifying resistance to tyranny, and the fight for freedom, ready to lay down his life for his country's independence. It's deeply moving. It's also deeply moving to me that friends of mine, from all walks of life, have uh, taken up arms to defend their country. Uh, I mentioned one Slava Uh, Ukraine's rock star, who is is now fighting uh, and risking his life against a significantly superior, if poorly led, invading force. These guys are risking their lives. And uh, of course, uh, there are many, many innocent civilians now who've fallen victim to this Russian aggression. It's heartrending to see cities bombed to rubble Uh, In ways that Europe hasn't seen since 1945. What did we miss? I would say uh, two things. We missed our own uh, naivety in saying to Ukraine in 2008, you can become a member of NATO along with Georgia, and then doing nothing to make that a reality. It's a little bit like a cartoon I once saw in the New Yorker magazine of a guy on the phone saying, no, I can't do Thursday, how about never? Could you do never? And that's essentially what we said to Ukraine. And that left them in the worst possible position, aspiring to be part of the West, and yet really having no prospects of becoming protected by NATO. The other thing we missed was, of course, that uh, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, is perfectly capable of using military force to achieve political ends because he's done it repeatedly. He did it against Georgia in 2008. He did it against Ukraine in 2014. He did it in uh, Syria uh, in 2015. Uh, He has form and we should not have been surprised uh, when he invaded because he had been threatening to do this for many months. I predicted on January the 2nd, that he was going to invade, that war was coming to Europe. Uh, But people in uh, Western uh, capitals, including President Biden, simply failed to believe that this was possible in 2022. So I think that was the thing that we missed and we failed to deter him. We altogether failed to deter him with sanctions.
0: You said you used the term yourself, uh, you know, comparing him to Churchill. Now Churchill was alone really, the figure that galvanized the world just in time at a critical point in the history of freedom. Is it possible that the West had enough of a wake up call to stop eating itself out from within, to pull itself together, Uh, I note some things that are quite astounding to me. There's this sudden snap into reality by the Germans, who are now wearing, uh, I hope it lasts, a lot of economic pain, uh, are now saying we must step up, we can't defend ourselves, we've been asleep at the wheel. That's effectively uh, what they're saying, and we're going to double uh, defence expenditure. But all over Europe, you're seeing a recognition that NATO must step up, And it does seem to me a a recognition in America, generally speaking, that NATO must be encouraged, but China remains the main game. Do we perhaps owe this remarkable man and his people uh, great credit for perhaps giving us the opportunity to snap out of this cycle of eating ourselves out from within, if I can put it that way? I certainly think that... uh... Zelensky
1: has uh, reminded us what political courage looks like, uh, and what freedom means, uh, a readiness to, to fight and die to prevent your country from being once again subjugated by Russian tyranny. It's a deeply impressive thing. And many of us in the West had sort of forgotten what that looked like. We'd been taken in by the Uh, braggadocio of uh, false heroes. I think you're right to say that there's been a huge shift in sentiment in Europe. How long it lasts is another question. I don't think this would have happened if Angela Merkel had still been chancellor. However, Uh, Olaf Scholz has proved himself ready to break, not just with the Merkel years, but with decades of German policy, dating all the way back to when I was a kid, Ostpolitik, uh, Willy Brandt's idea that you have to somehow get closer uh, to Russia or the Soviet Union as it then was, uh, and that the way to do this was through economic ties. All of this has gone out the window in the space of uh, just a couple of weeks of uh, unwarranted military aggression by Russia. And other things have happened that are remarkable. In Sweden and Finland, debates are suddenly happening about whether or not to join uh, NATO and end decades of of neutrality. I, I could go on. I think it has been impressive. I think the Europeans have indeed woken up from a prolonged slumber and they're realizing, and I include in this some of my British friends, that you simply cannot expect the United States to underwrite your security indefinitely in a continent that has been over the centuries, the world's hottest spot. So all of that is good. But there are a couple of problems that I think we shouldn't ignore. One is the attention deficit disorder of Western uh, public opinion. Uh, You've got a news cycle that maybe keeps a story like this going for a couple of weeks, maybe three. How long was Kabul in the headlines when uh, we disgracefully surrendered Afghanistan to the Taliban? Not much more than a month, if that. So I worry a little bit about the staying power of Western opinion. Right now it's inflamed. Uh, and indignant, uh, but it's inflamed and indignant about a different issue uh, each year. The other thing that worries me is the United States, because in the end, Europe cannot become uh, strategically autonomous uh, overnight. It it will take years to get Germany's defenses up to scratch after the long period of, of neglect that they've suffered. And during that time, in reality. Europe will continue to rely on the United States. And I think the United States' leadership, despite the promises of Joe Biden when he was elected, has been woefully inadequate, uh, not only in this crisis, but really since the administration came to power. Think about what happened last year. The Biden administration slowed arms deliveries to Ukraine, lifted the sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline designed to bypass Ukraine so that Russian gas could go directly uh, to Germany and signaled that it wouldn't fight if Putin invaded, it would only use sanctions. And they gambled quite wrongly that sanctions would deter Putin. Well, I think that was a fundamental misjudgment, and it's led us to the biggest foreign policy crisis in Europe, I think, since the end of World War II, because this is a much more dangerous situation than, say, 1956 or 1968 precisely because there is a real risk the war could escalate. They uh, heard Putin threaten the use of nuclear weapons, and they did not respond as they should have responded by saying unequivocally, if you do that, we will retaliate in kind. So there have been all kinds of really disappointing mistakes by the American administration. And I do wonder uh, what mistake they'll make next, uh, because this ain't over. And a very difficult process lies ahead of trying to negotiate a ceasefire trying to achieve some kind of stable peace. And uh, unfortunately, the country that has traditionally uh, led uh, the free world is uh, is really uh, under leadership that is well past its retirement
0: date. If we can dwell on this for a moment, the very thing that you've just alluded to, we've misread Putin time and time again. And he has used the few cards he has with, with enormous effect, including rattling the nuclear saber. So that now we have a situation where the world's bravest and most admired man is saying, protect our skies. It's obvious that there are people in NATO, including in Britain, who think that perhaps that should happen. Poland's offered uh, its uh, its uh, fairly small fleet of Soviet-era fighters. the Americans are saying no, presumably because of the threat of the nuclear. Um, uh, uh, retaliation by uh, Putin. This bloke seems to be able to get away with an extraordinary amount. I'm not saying whether I think it's right or not to try and protect those skies, but I am saying it appears it looks very much like a capitulation to another threat. Well, I think that this is a bluff uh, on the part of a man
1: who is uh, badly miscalculated. Uh, Putin thought that this would be a walkover and that the Ukrainians would fold rather like the Afghan government army folders last year. He even had the editorial ready to run uh, that would appear following the collapse of Kyiv and the uh, fall of the Zelensky government. None of this has happened. Uh, Even although they have significant superiority, especially in the air, the Russians have sustained astonishingly heavy casualties. The Ukrainian defenders have fought uh, heroically and effectively. And so this has gone wrong for Putin. What's also gone wrong for him is that he underestimated the pain the sanctions would inflict, not seeing that there might be, in addition to government mandated sanctions, spontaneous private sector sanctions directed by Western corporations against Russia. Right now, the Russian economy is collapsing in a way that it hasn't since the early 1990s, the time the fall of the Soviet Union happened and the planned economy disintegrated. And that is forcing Putin, I think, uh, in a relatively short time frame to the negotiating table. So let's not forget He screwed this up and his Chinese friends uh, in Beijing must be looking in disbelief at the fiasco that has resulted from an invasion that they gave the green light to uh, around about uh, the eve of the Beijing uh, Olympics. I think that the threat to use nuclear weapons was a bluff, but unfortunately it worked. I think, on the other hand, that we were right not to discuss a no-fly zone because that would have involved the NATO uh, war on Russia. Uh, and that, I think, uh, was not necessary under the circumstances. Uh, NATO completely dominates Russia militarily and in nuclear terms, too, because I suspect uh, technologically, uh, the US uh, nuclear capabilities are superior to those of the Russians. But the point is that if we had sufficiently armed the Ukrainians in the run-up to this conflict, there wouldn't have been any need to discuss no-fly zones. The problem is we left it too late to arm the Ukrainians adequately, and this was the great policy error. Arms uh, sales to Ukraine peaked in 2018 and subsequently declined. This is was on the watch of both Trump and uh, Biden, and I, I think the, the key to this whole crisis has been a failure to arm the Ukrainians sufficiently to deter the Russians. Sanctions aren't a deterrent, weapons are a deterrent, and we didn't give the Ukrainians enough, Uh, and that is, I think, at the heart of uh, of the current crisis.
0: You mentioned that Putin may be forced to the negotiating table because it's gone so badly. Am I sensing a slight uh, shaft of light in your mind, or do you think a man like this will simply be forced out of his pride, his obstinacy? his Various other qualities to see it through to the bitter end, and he'll just go on grinding away until he's destroyed the country. I don't think
1: that the Russian invasion, uh, the Russian offensive, can last much longer. Uh, I think it may even be measurable in days, maybe weeks, certainly not months. The economic situation in Russia is absolutely dire, and from my understanding, this has finally penetrated the. the palatial residences that President Putin occupies. Uh, I have good reason to think that the Russians are ready to take uh, a peace deal that would give them Crimea, Donetsk and Luhansk, in other words, what they already de facto controlled, as long as Ukraine commits not to joining NATO. And my understanding is that President Zelensky uh, will uh, make that commitment in order to bring peace to his country and stop the killing. So my sense is that we are approaching what will be a complex process of negotiation, first of a ceasefire, then of a peace. The Russians are desperate to get the sanctions uh, eased, and needless to say, the Ukrainians are desperate to see the Russian army withdraw. None of this will be easy, uh, but I think uh, it's becoming increasingly clear to me that even with massive uh, air superiority, and even with their own readiness to uh, bomb, to bomb Ukraine back to the Stone Age, or at least back to the 1940s, Russia cannot win this war and is going to have to negotiate a compromise.
0: Switching to the impact on the West, um, we've come out of, I would say, years of mismanagement uh, following the GFC, uh, then COVID. Now this Uh, Our Western balance sheets are very weak. Governments uh, are still uh, bogged in debt. We're now taking steps needed, and who could argue in terms of the sanctions you've been talking about, but they are going to be very costly for us as well. Uh, Energy security, uh, energy cost, the cost of oil at $300 a barrel, or people saying it'll go to $300 a barrel, $130 now. Uh, I should say. Uh, and and gas in real terms, in LNG terms, is around $500 a barrel. It's off the charts. It's unbelievable. So you've got security and the cost, the real risk of that s- uh, turbocharging an emerging problem with inflation, uh, interest rates moving. Uh, from an economist's perspective, um, th- this is not exactly strengthening for the West at a critical time either. Well, I'd say it's 1973
1: light. That is to say, we're suffering uh, a crisis rather similar to that of the early 1970s, but it's happening much faster. Luckily, the importance uh, of oil in particular is less than it used to be. Uh, But we have an inflation problem. That that inflation problem originated in the excessive fiscal and monetary measures that were taken to offset the impact of the pandemic and pandemic lockdowns. That problem was already uh, clear uh, early last year. Uh, It became uh, very apparent in the course of 2021, and we still are looking at the highest inflation since 1982 in the United States. The war makes it worse in just the same way that the 1973 Yom Kippur War, when the Arab countries attacked Israel, made the inflation problem worse in the 70s. And I think we are in for a very rough ride. Uh, Not only do things like financial sanctions have lots of unforeseeable consequences, but the fundamental disruption to energy markets caused by uh, the exclusion uh, of Russian oil uh, de facto from world markets has all kinds of ripple effects. So too does the disruption of Russian and Ukrainian agriculture. Uh, We must remember the heavy, heavy reliance on, for example, North Africa uh, on uh, grain uh, from Ukraine and Russia. So there's going to be an inflation impact in food as well as in in energy. I would say that this is going to uh, have a long uh, lingering impact that the Federal Reserve and other central banks are behind the curve. And inflation is going to be a problem that persists beyond this year uh, with all kinds of unpredictable ramifications politically, uh, as well as in terms of the social uh, stability of, of some countries. War has all these effects because, as I know, as a financial historian, war is the thing that moves inflation expectations the most. Uh, We already had moved inflation expectations with the excessive fiscal stimulus of last year. The war is giving uh, people around the world another very good
0: reason to expect prices to go up. Well, it's all obviously very concerning and will require enormous, uh, enormously strong leadership. And I think the world's eyes are very much on America at the moment. Uh, how things unfold there will be interesting. Tell me, in the West, we've seen really in the name of climate responses, all sorts of policies being pursued, which in effect push our manufacturing and other capacities towards authoritarian regimes. That's effectively what they do. The heart of this question goes to um, the thing that's on my mind here is, will we be sensible enough to recognise that um, security must come before climate, in my view, for this reason? If you're a climate change activist, you ought to be recognising the blunt reality that the authoritarian regimes are not committed to climate. You break the liberal rules-based global order under which, if you like, We slowly recognize the importance of climate and sought to do something about it. And you'll have a world that is just not interested in climate measures at all. We need to get the message over that preserving some sense in the global order is critical to the issue of climate. We can't hand away all our bargaining chips and our economic strength as part of this process.
1: In my view, the Ukrainian crisis has... Uh, revealed the nonsensical nature of European and North American energy policy. Uh, leaving aside the climate issue for a minute, allowing Europe to become dependent on Russian natural gas and oil was a fundamental strategic error. Uh, and Meanwhile, in the United States, cutting off the incentive to develop uh, shale uh, gas and oil uh, was a major mistake because it's easy to see how the United States could, in theory, replace Russia as a supplier of energy to Europe uh, with liquefied natural gas. But unless people are prepared to invest in pipelines and liquefaction facilities, it's not going to happen. Uh, the Europeans uh, made a bet on renewables that was naive. There is no way you can power the European economy on just the solar and wind. Uh, there has to be nuclear and there has to be gas. Uh, They made another uh, uh, wrong bet, which was to think that Russia would be a reliable supplier and wouldn't use the leverage uh, for political purposes. And meanwhile, in the United States, the Biden administration's turned away from the vast uh, natural resource wealth that the US has at its disposal. So we have to rethink all of this before we even start thinking about climate. When we do rethink it, we can see that from an environmental and economic point of view, there is a uh, sustainable energy mix gas clearly plays a key role in the transition to higher, more efficient, less polluting technologies, but it's a a bridge that will need to be extended over many years, uh, given the the major breakthroughs that still have to happen, for example, in in energy storage. So this should force everybody to rethink their energy strategy on both sides of the Atlantic and indeed around the world. And as you say, while we're doing that, uh, don't hold your breath expecting China Uh, significantly to reduce its coal consumption. It's China that is, of course, driving uh, climate change at the moment. And nothing that we do really makes a great deal of difference if China continues uh, to increase coal consumption in the way that it has every year since Greta Thunberg was born in 2003.
0: Well, that's a good segue into uh, uh, my final uh, lap uh, in this very kind time you're giving us, uh, Neil. China. Now, China has, uh, as, as our prime minister, I don't think he's had the credit here at home in Australia, I have to say, for the global leadership. It, is, it has been global for a country of 25 million. He has clearly, I think, focused attention on what he calls the emerging arc of autocracy, where you've essentially you've got the world breaking into those who believe in freedom. And, and there's, that's, that's the point about Zelensky and the Ukrainians, that, you know. Maybe they've woken us up in time to realise we've got to stand for what we believe in and stop undermining, particularly our children, confidence in their own culture. It's not perfect, but it's a lot better than the alternatives. Uh, but And, and that China, on the other hand, on, on this one, has refused to exercise the undoubted power that it would have had with its best friend Russia to pull them into line. Not only that, they're attempting to bust the very sanctions that might end the bloodshed. Um, what do you think China, though, would be thinking at the moment? They, they, they are in grave risk of becoming fellow pariahs, I would have thought, globally with Russia. I don't think China would want that. Uh, and they're also, of course, seeing us pull together in a way that perhaps they didn't expect.
1: Well, I think China made a major blunder in giving uh, Putin the green light uh, to invade so long as he waited till the Beijing Olympics were over. They now see Uh, the scale of the blunder, and they're trying to reposition themselves as peacemakers. And I think that's a shrewd move on their part, uh, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this war wouldn't have happened had it not been uh, given the blessing of Xi Jinping as part of that friendship that he and Vladimir Putin were boasting about uh, just before the Olympics. Uh, The closeness of the ties between Russia and China right now are at uh, historic highs, and uh, they appear to have an aligned view of the grave threat to their authoritarian uh, systems posed by democracy. I've been saying, as you know, John, for some time, and here I'll I'll have to end it, uh, we're in Cold War II. We've been in Cold War II for at least four years. The difference between Cold War II and Cold War I is that in this Cold War, China's the senior partner and Russia's the junior partner, whereas it was the other way around in the late 1940s, right the way through until the two fell out in the late 1960s. The other difference is that in Cold War I, the first hot war happened in Asia and Korea. In Cold War II, the first hot war is happening in Europe in Ukraine. Uh, as we look ahead, uh, we in the West, and I very much include Australia in that definition of uh, the West, regardless of geography, uh, we uh, who live in uh, democracies uh, and who believe uh, that democracy is the best Uh, of all forms of government, the one most conducive, not just to political freedom, but to economic progress, we have to stick together uh, because this is not uh, the last chapter of Cold War II, it's the first chapter. And who knows uh, what the next chapter will look like, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if a crisis over Taiwan uh, were part of that next chapter. I'll say one last thing, the Chinese are looking at this and thinking, "Hmm, it's harder than it looks. Uh, invading a neighbor. They're also thinking the uh, West won't be able to use sanctions against us the way that it just did against Russia. Uh, We're far too uh, big and strong uh, for that. And they're also probably looking at the Ukrainians and thinking there's no way the Taiwanese fight this hard in the streets of Taipei. So I don't think the probability of a Taiwan crisis has gone down very much. Uh, And I do sense that we should all be very clear-sighted about the role that China has played in this crisis in enabling Vladimir Putin's war of aggression.
0: Neil, the civilized world uh, owes you a great debt. Uh, Thank you very much for your time and for the role that you're playing in helping us understand right across the free world, as I I touched on, what's happening and what's at stake. Uh, Thank you. Thanks, John. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net do